Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is an author, a traveler, and a recovering gallery owner. She studied art history at the Prado while a student in Madrid and received degrees from the University of California and Stanford University. Her gallery focused on Hispanic artists, especially from South America. She published award-winning exhibition catalogs, and her writing has appeared in art journals and anthologies. Born in the Midwest, She now lives in San Diego with her book-collecting husband, but still retreats to Hawaii to write and travels the world. Attribution is her first novel. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Linda Moore. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Linda, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, so what took you so long to write a book? Well, I actually think it wasn't that long because I only decided to begin this career about 15 years ago. And I wrote a novel that ended up in a competition that it lost miserably. And I learned something from that. I didn't know how to write. I knew how to write, but not fiction. So I applied to uh, Stanford's uh, creative writing program and was accepted amazingly. And that's when my journey really began. So, but it 10 years, 15 years is a long time uh, to commit to something and keep working at it, but seems typical. It is. I've heard of people taking a lifetime of writing and finally publishing in retirement. So I'm I'm enjoying interviewing all of all of us who wrote our first book after the age of 50. You know, they tell us to write what you know or want to know. And you chose to write about an art historian. Was your art career the fodder for your inspiration? Well, it was. I. Uh... I had done quite a few things in between. I used to tell people I was only good for 10 years at something. Of course, writing has uh, changed that because I've been at it uh, quite a long time. However, I uh, really got the spark for this particular story when I attended a lecture and heard about a young curator who had discovered a painting he attempted to attribute. And that was really the inspiration. I thought, this is riveting. This is a, this is a story 
that needs a, a bigger audience. So uh, that was a real spark for this particular book. It does sound fascinating. I can't wait to delve into it. Once you knew you wanted to write this book and once you had written the book, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent, decide to use a hybrid, a small press, or did you self-publish? Well, of course, first I had to write the book and research the book and rewrite the book and revise the book and find people to read the book. And it's quite it's quite a, a long journey before you think the book is ready uh, for the world. I had written two novels before this, including the one I wrote in the Stanford program. And I had queried that uh, book at the suggestion of Carolyn Levitt, who was a mentor of mine and really a terrific person. Uh, and I sent it to five agents. Four of them wanted the full manuscript, which was really pretty good. But it was a difficult book for a lot of reasons. And I uh, decided maybe I should write a more straightforward book. And that became attribution. During COVID, I spent some time uh, taking online classes about publishing. And these agents would come on and say, well, I used to respond to everyone within six weeks, but I need to tell you now it will be six months. And at my age, I thought, I don't have six months to wait to hear if you're not interested, or even if you are instantly interested, then we have to find a publisher. Then there's years process to edit and prepare. I thought, at my age, I don't have that much time. I had met uh, Brooke Warner from She Writes Press at a conference, and I asked her at the end of the conference, this was before COVID, I asked her if I had, um, when the book was ready, if she was interested to see it. And she said, absolutely. So I reached out to her and everything came together. And so I'm very happy to be with this small independent press and uh, and move, move forward. It, it still took me at least almost two years, 18 months from the time I worked with Brooke to to the publication date next month. They are quite booked up. They are a very popular press and they are booked years in advance, I hear. Uh, I hear that, too. I don't know that that was so much the issue for me at the time, but I think there's been a huge surge of interest in publishing. They're celebrating their 10th anniversary. Well, how did you determine the plot of this book? Well, I it's interesting. I'm fortunate to be part of a couple of read and critique groups, and some of them have some had some distinguished authors be part of their group, including one that Susie Vreeland was part of. And so I had a lot of good input, and the plot evolved as I read chapters to the group, and I would listen carefully to what worked for them, what didn't. And it it took a while. Initially, it was a very, very simple story. And I realized to make the character interesting, there needed to be 
more depth to her story and the plot about her brother's death, which is not a, a surprise because it happens on page one, uh, is uh, it changes her motivation of why she is trying to pursue her successful career uh, and have her parents grief somehow relieved by her success. Do you write every day? What is your writing routine? Are you a morning person or a night person? I I am a morning person. I don't like to be interrupted at all. It takes me out of the world. And even if it's a simple thing as someone walking through the room, I uh, am distracted and I have to it takes me a while to get back into it. So I prefer not to be interrupted. And the morning is the best time for that. I also lately have not been so good at the writing practice every day because I have so much work related to putting this book out into the world. I can't work very well on the next book. So so I'll get back to it, I hope, in the new year. Well, I'm the same way. I hear of all of our writers who sit in coffee shops and and have people buzzing around them. And I'll just say, I don't know how you do it. I have to have complete silence to be able to write. <laughs> uh, I found another secret that place that works for me, and that's on uh, long airplane flights at night. If it's overnight, it gets all quiet and dark and you can sit there at your computer and nobody talks to you. Nobody says anything and it's all very quiet. I, I can get a lot done on a, a long airplane flight. Well, that's a great idea. And if anybody travels as much as you, that would be a good time to write. Did real people inspire any of your characters? Well, one of the characters, the antagonist, if you'd like to say, is Professor Jones. And I can tell you at least three professors come to mind when I think of his character and his practice of twirling his pencil and so on goes right straight to somebody who was my uh, professor at Stanford. And uh, I, I, it's interesting because... I had a good friend who has been a dean and a chairman of uh, his art history department and so on, read the book and give me his feedback. And he said, well, Linda, I don't think we have professors like this anymore. Uh, this may be a dinosaur here or there, but we have all these policies and committees and things. And I said, okay, I'll take that under consideration. And then I went out and asked all these young women who'd recently been to graduate school. And they all said, 100% of them said, I know that guy. I do know that guy. So I felt confident that uh, this is a character that's quite believable to those who've been in academia. There are still a lot of dinosaurs in the academic world. <laughs> What about publicity? We writers like to write and we don't like to promote ourselves. How have you been handling publicity for the book? Well, I find it easier to promote others than myself, certainly. Uh, but as a former gallery owner, 
I am well aware of how important it is to uh, to make the world aware that your art exists. And um, so I consider it part of my responsibility to share. Um, and fortunately, I've been able to assemble a group. I call them the success team. Some people say the street team or the um, the launch team, but a group of friends who've been willing to volunteer to post and share and, you know, add me to their book clubs and all sorts of activities, post a picture of themselves reading the book. And those people keep my spirits up and uh, their kind comments about how much they enjoyed the book make me feel I'm sharing and offering something that will actually be enjoyment for others. And, um, and as most people who've written a book know, it's, it's really not about uh, huge financial success for certain. <laughs> and, uh, but to be rewarded for working so hard by having others read it is a huge, uh, a huge boost to my energy to continue to tell everyone about the book. It's a very humbling industry. And I think the more that we can reach out to our writing friends and build that community, which I know that she writes does very well, uh, the more that we can commiserate with each other about it. And having that writing community, I think, Julia, is uh, a gift I didn't expect. Uh, the love and the care and the generosity of people who I barely know, some of them I barely know, some I've never met in person, um, that, that is an inspiration that there's hope for humanity because it's a great kindness to be part of this community. So true. Tell us a little bit more about the book. Well, Kate Adamson is a young art historian. As I said, she is dealing with her grieving family, had to interrupt her studies. Finally, she realizes in order to move forward for all of them, she flees to New York to finish her doctorate. Um, and there she meets an impossible professor who really isn't supportive of women and won't approve her dissertation topic. And she's concerned that her failure will really impact her parents. Uh, and so she is doing the inventory of the art and finds a painting hidden in the cellar of the university she believes is a Baroque masterpiece. So she takes the painting and over the holidays flees to Spain to find experts who might help her uh, identify it and thereby get her career back on track. So uh, in that adventure, she meets uh, a young and impoverished Duke who's trying to save his own family legacy. And together they join forces to try to uh, prove what this painting is. 
That's very intriguing. And I have always wanted to get into someone's attic and find a treasure. So you've got me hooked from the beginning. (laughs) Well, it's surprising because since I started doing this, I, I was posting and on my newsletter and my website and sometimes Facebook, I post stories of people who found, I call it lost or hidden art. And it's shocking how many stories there are. And now that I've been doing it, people are sending me stories and I can barely keep up. So it's a very, it's a very real possibility. People who go to the Goodwill and find things, people who go to uh, little flea markets in Europe and find things. Uh, it's, it's really s- pretty interesting, all the stories. Well, Linda, why don't you read a few paragraphs for us so that we can hear your tone and voice in the book? Uh, This section is from the first chapter, and Kate is in the cellar of the university in a storeroom that's been kind of overlooked, where she's found a rolled canvas in an old chest. And uh, I will I will begin there. Even one turn to unroll the stiff canvas might flake the pigment or tear the linen. She suppressed the urge to flatten the roll to view the whole image and instead stood back, focused on taking a deep breath, summoning the patience to respect the art. She turned the roll over and focused the light to view the edge. Could it be lapis lazuli pigment? Expensive and important, only used on works that mattered, shimmering even in the dim light. Evidence the pigment had been hand ground was revealed in the granular texture, dating it to hundreds of years of age. That ultramarine color had been applied with brush strokes. The few that were visible worked together with exactness and then expressive freedom. She stood back for perspective to view strokes that defined realistic holes of velvet, perhaps draperies, or an elegant skirt painted in red lake crimson, another priceless color hiding under aged varnish. She examined the backside of the linen covered with irregular slubs only found in handwoven fabric, the ground from the red clay used to prepare the front side of the canvas had bled through the back. Her heart rate increased with each bit of information tested against her knowledge of the practices of certain artists she'd studied. The style, those costly pigments, the precise brush strokes combined with spontaneous dabs like those royal paintings she'd studied at the Prado. Could it be? A European masterwork in the cellar of an American university, not the attic of an English country house chock-a-block with such things, or the rectory of a regional church rolled up in armoires that held liturgical vestments, places such things were expected to be discovered, was at the least highly improbable. She focused the light again at the canvas edge, doubting what her eyes with certainty had seen, 
The cracks in the canvas declared it old in a way that could not be forged. Her imagination leapt ahead with possibilities, resisted the counter arguments, overflowed with an intuitive conviction that this was something. Something she could not see the whole of and should not speculate. And yet the possibility could not be denied. Could it be a, she couldn't say the name, even a solitary whisper in this cavern might let the unthinkable into the universe. An attribution so audacious, she could only shout it in silence. That's beautiful. Does it make you want to find out? Turn the page, I hope. It, it definitely <laughs> does. That's very fascinating. And I can see that your background in art, you know, gave us such rich details. Did you have to do a lot of research about the the paintings, about the history? I, I did. I did. And it was very important to me because I've read a few books, more than a few, that have art history or a, a particular painting as the focus of the story. And when I read them, of course, I end up spotting things that I know are not correct. And I didn't want this book to be like that. So I worked, not only did I research for years and work on all the details, I, I learned surprising things that changed the story. And uh, I also asked experts, uh, interviewed them. I asked them to read the book. I interviewed art conservators, curators, experts in this particular period of art. So I um, I learned a lot and I enjoyed it. I, I didn't mind having that, um, spending my time that way. I was happy to do it. A lot of us fall down the rabbit hole of research and we like to stay there sometimes. <laughs> I know it's true. It's a, it's a kind of procrastination too. It's for certain. Was there anything that you edited out of the book that was not included? At the original book, uh, Kate had a boyfriend in New York and after I finished the book and I thought about it more, I thought, what purpose does he serve, really? So I, he's gone. Uh, there was a section in the middle of the book where she's spending most of her time in libraries and not a whole lot is happening. So I took that out and summarized it in a paragraph or two. And I love when people review the book and they say, oh, it's fast paced. It moves right along. Because one of my worries was, and this often happens, I think, when I go to a museum lecture or something, where art experts feel the need to tell everything they know. And you all don't, readers don't want to hear everything you know. <laughs> so editing out is an art in itself. And um, yeah, the boyfriend went, the library went. I think the book is better for it. I think it's very difficult to kill a lot of passages that we think are so beautiful, but they just don't move the story forward. I agree. Do you have any other books in you? Well, I have those two in the drawer and uh, the publisher would like to have the book uh, right now titled Five Days in Bogota. And I 
a, a good portion of my art and academic world was spent in Latin America. So Latin America, Spain, they're real loves of mine. And uh, this story is about um, a, a widowed mom of two young children uh, who owns an art gallery. The life insurance for a husband will not pay is being disputed. So she has to go find some income for her family quickly. And Allie, she is, uh, decides to go to Bogota to an art fair in the early 90s, which was the time of the drug wars. And uh, she feels she can meet clients at this art fair who will um, help her uh, bank account in a fast fashion. And so the story takes place mostly in Bogota. Well, that sounds fascinating as well. I have two grandchildren adopted from uh, Colombia, so oh, yeah. I feel close to that area of the world as well. Well, it's a beautiful country and a tremendous. Uh, I love the people. It's so uh, uh, beautiful, the culture and the music and the art. It, it's, uh, I actually went to an art fair in Bogota in 1991. So this, a lot of the book comes from real life experience, uh, not not the thriller part of it, but close. Uh, it was uh, a very strange time for Colombia, as you probably no doubt know. What do you think was the best money you've ever spent as a writer? Oh, going to Stanford, no doubt. Uh, I, the, the faculty is top notch. It's an online program. And of course, at that time I was traveling a lot. So I would participate in classes from India or Australia or wherever I happened to be. And, uh, and uh, writing of course is something that can easily be adapted to an online program. And also my classmates, there were 15 of us, were all over the world, Sweden, Bahamas, Guatemala. And I was so enriched by all these people from these different perspectives and viewpoints. And uh, and the faculty was tops. And I am still very good friends with faculty. And our Stanford group continues to meet once a week to nudge each other, to set our own goals and have accountability to meet the goals the next week. And all of that's really important to success, to getting a book out. I've interviewed a lot of Stanford grads and y'all are all top notch. Well, thank you. Yeah. Does your family support your career as a writer? Well, uh, they do what they can. My husband is terrific. He's the, uh, purchasing, shipping, uh, accounting <laughs> department, uh, it, practicing, uh, you know, trying to uh, get all those little dimensions. And that's, that's a terrific help. Uh, my son is my tech guy. And he jumps in and helps me with those sorts of things. My daughter's an attorney. So she's a terrific proofreader. And she read the book, found some things. Um, and all of that, 
I I'm very happy because they, as young parents have like such busy lives. And so, uh, I'm grateful. Uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's fun when you hear them bragging to somebody else about you. I mean, they don't do that to you usually, <laughs> but you hear them telling a friend, oh, my mom wrote a book, or I've even heard my grandson say, my, my, my grandma, they call me more, more wrote a book. So uh, there, that's exciting. I feel that way as well. My, one of my granddaughters um, had to write a, read a book this summer and report on it in school this year. And she read my book. She said, how oh, many, wow. how many students in my class will be able to say that their grandmother wrote a book? Right, so right. that just pleased me to no end. Well, yay for all of us <laughs> over fifties, grandmothers or grandfathers who have uh uh, taking this on, I, I did dedicate the book to my five grandchildren because I want them to know that they can do whatever, whenever in their life uh, it makes sense and that they should pursue those dreams. I agree. Well, Linda, our last interview question is always our writers over 50 are quite unique. Do you have any advice for writers 50 and above? Well, I will say this. I think writing or whatever dream you want to pursue will save your life. And there's a lot of evidence that that is true. I went to a symposium a few years ago by Deborah Zake, who started the Golden Door. She was a real pioneer in wellness. And there were super experts there. And they had photos of people with gray hair on bicycles having a great time and people with gray hair slumped over in wheelchairs. And of course, the punchline was the people in the wheelchairs were younger <laughs> than the ones on the bicycles. What made the difference? And of course, you want to say nutrition and genetics and exercise and all those things. And they're important, but it wasn't, according to these medical experts, the differentiator. And I wrote it on a little tablet. I still have it in capital letters. Have dreams. If you think it's all behind you, it probably is. But if you're working every day, getting up in the morning and working toward a goal, and it doesn't matter if it's learning to play bridge or write a book or, or you know, crochet or, or whatever, it, it just so it's a dream that that is yours and you want to pursue it. So that's my advice is find your dream and go for it. Well, that's very valuable advice. And I believe so strongly about that and about us and our life's sweetest third. And we just appreciate you sharing with us today. And, and we thank you so much for being with us. And we're excited to now say that you're one of our authors over 50. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily.com. 
Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.